Oh, man. No, I was ready to fight, too, because I walked by a bunch of families and I was like, you shame me. I will come down on you on your parenting style way to teach your female children how to be ashamed of their bodies. I was ready. I was ready. I was like, it's too hot. I'm not going to wear some long sleeve, cute little orchard bullshit when it's 90 degrees outside. Yeah. Not happening. Honestly, you'd see less if you went to a beach. Nobody said anything, but a lot of the dads were (laughs) walking by. (laughs) Uh, Um, Yeah, so I have a bunch of apples. I need to make apple pie probably tomorrow. Oh, that's cool. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminists. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going from corpses to continents. We're learning about the mother of forensics and also the oceanographer who proved the validity of Pangea. I'm really excited to hear about these corpses, Megan. Yeah, no, today is a fun one. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty psyched for Halloween. Oh, okay. You don't know about me being psyched for Halloween. It's only been our favorite holiday for the entirety of us knowing each other. Yeah, so I know we're both pretty excited. And I'm excited because for once I actually have my Halloween shit together on time. Oh my god, for once, I don't. Usually it's the other way around. Usually I'm super elaborate and then she kind of rolls in with some last minute, like, we planned this shit months ago, Megan. How do you not have a costume? And she's like, at my place trying to put together something. Okay. Like, the night before. Yo, I'm almost 30 now. I got my shit together, so. I'm so proud of you. Move forward. And it's not off of Amazon either. I'm ready for some spooky stuff. So I'm ready for some ghosts, some monsters. And an all-time favorite, murder. Murder. We're getting murdery today. Yes. Tell me more. What's her name? So our first death opens up in a two-story house. It's April of 1948. We're in the back of the house where both porches for the middle and top floor have laundry hanging to dry. We've got flower pots, swing towels. Everything is in order. Everything's perfectly ordinary, still early in the day, but at the ground below, a woman is crumpled and dead. Um, is this real? It is. It's that woman is Annie Morrison, who lived with her husband on the top floor. She is lying face down, a wet rag and wooden clothespins beside her. And the question is, how did she die? And this is where our artist comes into play. So this episode, I'm covering someone that, I mean, you could have just as easily done. I'm doing Frances Glesner Lee, also known as the mother of forensics. And luckily for me, she was also an artist, a a really amazing craftswoman. And I'm biased because I got my BFA in crafts. (laughs) Yeah, super biased. Um, Frances tasked herself with compiling information on unexplained deaths like that of our Annie Morrison and depicting them in the form of dollhouses. Okay. Uh, Frances made (laughs) death dollhouses. Why? 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 Okay, well, before we can get into that, we got to know a little bit more on the who, what, where, when, and why of Francis Glesner Lee. Okay, okay, keep going. All right, so we're going to hit the pause button a little bit, get some context to this. 
Uh, have you ever heard of her before? No. Okay, so as we've covered quite a few times before, this artist came from a stupid rich family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, funny what people can accomplish when they have solid financial backing. Now, Francis's father, John, was a very important figure in agricultural equipment manufacturing in Chicago. Now, being a very important figure, it placed John and his family in the very important upper class of Chicago. They are very well-to-do. Both Francis's parents, John and her mother, Sarah, they are very active in their social circles, patrons of the arts, very civic-minded, uh, very respectable family overall. Now, Frances was born in March of 1878. She was the youngest child and their only daughter. Frances had one older brother who survived into adulthood, George, who was seven years older. Frances and her brother, they're deemed to have frail health and subsequently they're sheltered away in country homes with private tutors. So as a kid, Frances liked reading Arthur Conan Doyle's books her mother was really creative, and from her, she learned silversmithing and painting and embroidery. Frances picked up all these very traditional skills imposed on wealthy young women to be nice and pretty and socially polite and a great hostess, but she was also really smart, too. And I think there might have been resentment when her brother got to go to Harvard, but she didn't. Oh. Yeah. She wanted to go into the medical field, but her family forbid her from attending college. Like, how shitty is that? That's awful. Like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to better... Ah! Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, we're in the um, kind of mid to late 1890s, so yeah, it's a whole boatload of issues and expectations. Instead, come 1897, Frances is 19. She's just finished a grand tour of Europe, because that's what everyone does. Gets back to Chicago and is like, all right, let's do this. Makes her society's debut. Mm -hmm. And then promptly gets married to a law partner of one of her brother's friends, a 30-year-old Blewett Lee. No. Yeah. How old was she again? She was 19. He's 30. Oh, no. Yeah. Might not work out no. too well. No. <laughs> so, I know, I know. Like, you can already see so many red flags right there. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> um. Well, they lived oh, happily just... ever after, and that's the end of my segment. The end. Uh, no, instead they moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and by 1906, Frances is 28, and she's separated from him, and they have three young children together. Mm, three in ten years? No. Yeah, yeah. In nine years, yeah. So she fights for a divorce, and she finally gets one eight years later in 1914 when she's 36. I mean, today's divorce rates are about 50%, but back then it was only 10%. And he's a lawyer, too, so I'm sure it was, a, like, a bitch of a fight to finally get that paperwork oh, to go yeah. through. And they're both from, like, very respectable families. He was from a very respectable, very Southern family, so I'm sure that was, like, yeah, a little scandalous that his wife was leaving him mm. and taking the children. Right. So, yeah. So, after this, Frances spends time between her family homes in Chicago and New England. Eventually, she opens an antique shop with her daughter. At this point, it's the 1920s. And, you know, most likely she's filling all the expectations of being a mother and a well-to-do socialite. Right. Just kind of cross those T's and dot those I's, right? Yep. But it's the 1920s. We have the roaring 20s going on. White women have been granted the right to vote. Right. We're still waiting for literally everyone else. Yeah, pretty much. But I mean, equality-wise and racially, things are still really shitty. Women are fired from jobs for being pregnant. Women are legally barred from holding certain jobs or even wearing certain clothes. 
down here in Virginia, there was a bill, it did fail, um, to restrict the amount of throat that women could expose in certain clothing. What? Bitch, my throat is always out. I know, like three inches in like an evening gown. Uh, that was too much. My throat? My shoulders? My tits? I know, right? My arms. <laughs> Shown it all at the apple orchard. So yeah, I mean, shit's still pretty fucked up in the 1920s as it is now. So 100 years later, still fighting that shit. But for Frances, her wealth and her race insulated her from that. And Frances really started coming into her own, as terrible as this sounds, when her family died. Mm, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see it. Less restrictions on her. Yeah, yeah. So her older brother... He was traveling abroad, caught the influenza, and not long after, he passed at the age of 57. This oh, is in 1929. No. Yeah. And then later on, her parents, they they died of old age. Her mother in 1932, and then her father in 1936. And he was like 92, 93 years old. Crazy to think of. That's insane for that time period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think of everything that he saw from like the 1830s up until the 1930s. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and we complain about back in my day when there was dial-up. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> sound, yeah. Oh my god, you yeah, do I that sound it. so well. <laughs> I'm so amused. God, you and your brother, you guys both do sound effects. Who did <laughs> yeah. the, Okay, wait. I want to know who did the best sound effects between your parents when they would read you guys books? Um, who did this come from? neither one of them oh that's lame it, it was here here's why because he's nine years older than me everything i do is because of him do you think your grandmother read books and she did sound effects oh yeah i like mommy? this idea of like this very prim proper grandmother who will not show her face until her hair and makeup is perfect Secretly reading little Spanish books to him and making like car crash sounds and like train wrecking. And I could see it. Yeah. I mean, I probably was either mommy or puppy. <laughs> so, yeah. So he, he saw a lot in his life, but um, died. And uh, with that immediate family wealth and then some money that her uncle had left Francis, she was in a really good financial point. Yeah, all that money and all that freedom, what is she going to do with herself? Well, she's able to finally pursue what she wants, and this is where things get murdery. Well, you know, it was bound to happen. <laughs> At some point. <laughs> um, so it's the early 1930s. Frances at this point, she's in her early 50s, and she's good friends with this guy, Dr. George Burgess McGrath. The doctor and Frances' brother... They went to Harvard together. They shared the same birthday. He would stay over at their giant 1,500-acre estate. Uh, he was a family friend and important for us. He was the first, or rather one of the first, medical examiners in the country. Oh, fancy. And as Francis was coming of age, there are really big leaps in the scientific study of crime, from ballistics to toxicology to fingerprinting. But even in the 1930s, the connection between those advances in technology and the actual application of them, it was lagging. And this Dr. George Burgess McGrath, he was trying to combat that. He was trying to bridge medical knowledge with the law in order to solve crimes and to bring people to justice because of it. 
Good man. In 1921, he was one of the first people to use ballistics to convict two murderers. He was outspoken about publicly elected coroners who usually had no legal or medical experience. Oh, what? And he fought against them against them taking office, which to this day, there are still parts of the United States. There are some there are still some counties where all you need is a high school diploma to be elected coroner. What? Like, that's only the government official investigating suspicious or unusual deaths. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's kind of terrifying. So, Frances, she was really on board with what the doctor was doing. So much so that in 1931, she donated, by today's rates, over $4 million to Harvard in order to fund the creation of the Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Oh, wow. Yeah, our dear doctor heading it. I could very easily have done her. Yeah, she's so intriguing. And there's so many different aspects you could approach her from. She's she's pretty fun. <laughs> so for a woman who grew up reading Sherlock Holmes, the idea of combining medical insight, unexplained deaths, and the law seemed like common sense. Obviously. But unfortunately, real world application of that was very far from her expectations. So what was happening around the time was a lot of pursuit of science that basically claimed that you can tell a person's character based off of their physical characteristics. And that was just a big notion of especially white men being able to be racist and sexist and call everyone who doesn't look like them morally and biologically inferior and criminal at the same time. Now, Francis was surprised that there were no institutions in the United States that kind of bridged the gap between medical experience and legal practice. This is where her wealth and connections allowed her to make shit happen. So with her funding to Harvard and the creation of the new legal medicine department, Frances had two main aims. And pretty much that was, quote, research into the causes of unexplained death and the practical application and teaching of the results of the research to those that will use it throughout the land in the interest of science and justice. I think she needs a cape. She's so awesome in all the different facets that she worked. So like essentially, let's say we find a body in the river. How long has it been there? How like did they drown? Could they have been murdered? And like if so, how can we use our results to nail the bastard that killed them? Like that kind of thing. And Francis, in creating this department, she was formulating like the formal process for how things like that would be handled on a national level. That's so cool, like standardizing. Yeah, because I mean, it's so hard to believe that kind of standardization did not exist. It varied so much from department to department. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, and this is why we look back in the 70s and we're like, gee, no wonder we had so many serial killers because all these police departments like we're just not on the same page. They didn't have any interconnected, like, databases at all. No. So, yeah, and Frances, like, she really just wanted everyone on the same page from the police to doctors to public prosecutors and just really wanted all investigations to be streamlined and how they were handled. And, like, this is all reasonable, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Frances, she writes about the aims of her department in a 1952 paper you know, she describes the, the curriculum, the outline of it, the training seminar, seminars that are held, how they're documenting different types of injuries and tissue decay. And by now, Frances is in her 70s. She's acting as a sponsor and hostess. And in that same paper, she's also like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm making murder dollhouses. I guess I should explain about that. <laughs> I need you to continue i need you to continue i know i was like wait what like i was reading an actual paper and i was like um yeah please expand 
Thank you. So with Frances facilitating this like new curriculum at Harvard, she recognized learning tools. They were needed, writing, quote, since time and space are at a premium, and since visual studies of actual cases seem a most valuable research tool, some method of providing that means of study had to be found. Q, her nutshell studies of an unexplained death, aka murder dollhouses of death. <sighs> what? <laughs> I mean, some people are visual learners. You need that in your life. You have to. So it's like it's the simulation before computers existed. That's exactly it. It And, like, even by, like, newer training standards, by today creating a virtual reality crime scene, this is what it goes back to. Yeah. That's crazy. That's, like, ahead of our time. And it's terrifying because that was only the 1940s and 50s. <laughs> like, we thought serial killers were bad in the 1970s. Like, what were those bastards doing in the 1910s? We don't know because no one had their shit together and they could have been murdering people left and right. And they probably were. They probably were. So, but it's funny because when you like learn more about Francis, it like it totally makes sense with how this all came together. So with her prim and proper background, one thing that was customary for wealthy girls to do is to make miniatures. Essentially, fancy dollhouses that was a very popular thing for wealthy people to well wealthy women to do and there was a contemporary artist during this time in chicago along with francis a narcissa nye black thorn uh that's a badass name i know right she made these like absolutely like meticulous amazing miniature historical rooms and looking at some of the pictures online i thought they were the real thing that's crazy yeah so francis is working very much in the same vein so while narcissa and francis worked at the same scale one inch to one foot francis just happened to have corpses in her room Now, uh, in total, there are 19 of Francis's nutshell studies, and they're all based on actual incidences that occur. So within Francis's social circle, it wasn't hard to find someone who's eager to tell her about their latest case because she worked with a lot of judges and, you know, right. chiefs of police, very, like, high-ranking individuals. Right. And so pulling from what her friends told her about their own professional experiences and cases that Francis had read about, she compiled these composite recreations of the crime scenes through her dollhouse studies. And like I said, they're like a one inch to one foot ratio. An absolutely like ideal dollhouse size. And Frances was meticulous in depicting everything. How much time did she put in one dollhouse, do you know? I'm not sure. So eventually she did take on some assistance. And she worked with a carpenter who did help get, like, the basics roughed out for her. Right. But she essentially did, like, everything else, be it a three-room scene or a kitchen or a garage. Uh, it was always depicting domestic deaths. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was a combination of her own custom-crafted pieces to these, like, modified found objects that she would use. That's insane. It's They're so wild. I, we're going to have so many pictures up on the, the show notes, and you guys can just Google and check out. Like, in one instance, there's a kitchen, and everything's nice, and everything's tidy, and very, like, 19 middle class, 1940s vintage, except there's a woman passed out on the floor who looks like, did she commit suicide? Was she murdered? Is it carbon monoxide poisoning? We're not sure. But hanging by the sink is a little egg beater. 
And it used to be part of a charm bracelet. (laughs) And Frances took it off and modified it and she would paint it and she delicately hung it right next to the sink. And over by the oven, this woman's passed out dead. (laughs) That's, that's pretty fantastic. They're absolutely amazing. I mean, and there's one where a woman is hanging from the roof rafters and one of the socks has slid off of her foot and... Frances had, she had worn magnifying glasses so she could knit with pins the socks Uh, that this person was wearing as they were hanging in one of her scenes. Oh my god. So it's not like she just, because she had the money, it's not like she just went out and bought items and like threw them together and was like, okay, I think this is what happened at the time of death. No, she really put herself into this. And that's why I'm saying she's a craftswoman. She she put everything into herself with this. And there have been some shows that have taglined it like murder is her hobby. And maybe just because I have my BFA in crafts, I feel personally offended. Absolutely. Because this is not this is not her hobby. This was her work. Right. This was her professional work. I mean, really, they're just scaled down murder scenes. They're, they're just absolutely amazing. In 1953, Popular Mechanics went and interviewed her and like followed her in her workshop. And they just had an absolute field day. I mean, she had like a custom miniature vice to hold the tiny pieces for her when she was woodworking. Oh my God. Yeah. They're just, they're so fantastic. And it's so morbid because you're like, oh my God, the detail. And you're like, oh yeah, well, they're dead. But like, oh my God, look in the kitchen and the sink and the bathroom. And they're they're so absorbing. Oh my God. Like the juxtaposition with everything. You're like, this is amazing, but also, oh. Yeah, no, it's weird because, I mean, like, looking past the content of someone being hung or stabbed or drowned, I mean, right. their snapshot of 1920s or the, the mid-20th century domestic life. I mean, every aspect is meticulously detailed, you know, all the way down to the labeling on the tin cans and to the overflowing ashtrays. That's insane. Yeah. And even more impressive is the fact that Frances labor- labored over these when she was in her 60s and 70s. Oh, God, that's right. Could you imagine her arthritis kicking in? Yeah, I mean, already at this point, she's a grandma. <laughs> Could you imagine the ki- <laughs> the kids visiting her? What are you doing, Grandma? Oh, my God. You can't go in Grandma's workshop. You got yelled at last time nope. by your mom. Yep. <laughs> oh, dear, move her along. There's shortbread in the oh kitchen. Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's I didn't even think about great. that. Yeah, but I mean, for Frances, like, her main intention for all these were to, quote, be an exercise in observing, interpreting, evaluating, and reporting. There is no solution to be determined from the dollhouses that she's compiling. And I mean, Frances, she just wanted whoever was approaching these to view them with an open mind and just consider everything that could potentially happen. And like, ironically, Frances was able to use these like traditional notions of what an upper class wealthy woman should do, which is focus on domestic affairs and, you know, pursuits like knitting and painting. And she used them to depict like these really perverse realities of the home. Oh, she did. Yeah. I mean, all for the purpose (laughs) of solving crimes. Like, I mean, the more she was in her home, her domestic sphere, making these works about the domestic sphere, like the more impact she had on the public. Right. Just like this weird dichotomy, which I like. So the cool thing is that Frances's nutshell studies, they're still used today. Frances did pass away in 1962 at the age of 83. But 
within her lifetime, she saw validation and appreciation for her work. Good. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I know. It's such a big thing. Her program was described as, quote, as sought after in police circles as bids to Hollywood by girls who aspire to be actresses. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was a hot <laughs> shit. And uh, what was taught, I mean, that helped lay the groundwork for modern day forensic investigation that we still use today. Right. Brava, Francis. Brava. She's been so much fun to read about. Believe me, I could have done a lot more on her. So today, her 19 murder dollhouses are in Maryland in the office of the chief medical examiner in Baltimore. And they're still used to teach crime scene observation. Wow. Yeah. Like, they're they're still relevant and they're still an active teaching tool. And because of that, there's not much word on what the solution, if there is one, to these dollhouses are because they want to keep it secret. Right. So it can still be a teaching tool. Right. Um, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, they're a teaching tool, and they were also in the Smithsonian American Art Museum back in 2017. Oh, my God. Yeah. They had their own exhibit. I can't wait to see these pictures. They're, oh, my goodness. They're such a doozy. They're absolutely amazing. Now, back to our dead woman, Annie Morrison. So, we've got a statement from her husband, who was in the living room. He said everything was fine. Suddenly, he heard a sound. And when he looked, she was lying dead. We've got a statement from the woman living below. She said the couple always fought, and in fact, they had earlier that day. She thinks that Annie suspected her husband was having an affair. Mm. Yeah. And then the investigator's report at first declared that it was an accident, but then an autopsy revealed a wound from a twenty-two rifle. Oh, no. The same type of rifle that the husband had. Mm. So it's a matter of, gee, who did it? Right. Neighborhood boys playing with a gun. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. Oh. So Francis' friend, Dr. George Burgess McGrath, he said, quote, death occurs in queer places and under strange circumstances. Sometimes we just miss keeping alive. So, like, think, what if Annie had been standing two feet over on the porch? What if she had bent down to pick up towels to hang up? And the gunshot just would have missed her. It just, it's crazy to think about that. And that's one dollhouse they actually took out of the rota for people being assigned to it. Because like, how the hell are you supposed to get that looking at a dollhouse? Like, you can't know that. And that's part of her teaching tool is that there's so many outside variables. You have to consider what you don't know. So life is fleeting. Only death is certain. Make art and have fun while you can. And all hail. Francis Glesner Lee the mother of modern forensics who made murder dollhouses, a.k.a. dystopian dollhouses of death. I'm suddenly having an existential crisis. Thank you. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I know. That got really heavy, especially through tone of voice. And I was like, oh, shit, I've gone too far. You've, you've gone way too far. But it was, it was the <laughs> only dollhouse where I could get the scoop on what actually happened. Oh, my God. Because they, like, they keep it so closely guarded. Right, 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 right. Oh, God. That's crazy. Yeah. No, it's a it's a doozy. Well, Francis might have helped individuals solve murder mysteries, but my lady also helped people solve a mystery. You know what? I love how we don't initially plan it, but we do end up kind of uh, syncing up a bit. Syncing up. It's because we love each other and we're basically the same person. It's fine. <laughs> Don't tell your brother. <laughs> It'll creep him out. He would just be like, <laughs> So you want me to tell you about this mystery? I'm Yeah, I'm curious and I really hope it doesn't 
involve any neighborhood kids playing with, with guns. No. Has nothing to do with kids playing with guns. Good. People were shooting things, but they were not shooting guns. Arrows. Sound. Well, okay, wait. That was... Okay. I was not expecting that. <laughs> I am doing an oceanographer. Her name was Marie Tharp. She was born July 30th, 1920 in Michigan. Uh, her mom was Bertha Louise Tharp. She was a German and Latin teacher. And dad was a William Edgar Tharp. He was a soil surveyor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They moved around a lot for dad's job. She attended like 20 public schools growing up. Uh, holy moly. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. She was all over the place. After high school, she took a year between like college and high school Uh, She, like, helped with the family and helped with her sick mom. And then in 1936, she matriculated into college and she graduated with a bachelor's in English and music with four minors. That's a lot. Okay. I mean, geez, I couldn't even handle one minor. So she got out. The war happened. World War II. And suddenly they needed people in, like, factories and the petroleum industry. And for some very odd and strange reason, she was recruited into the petroleum geology program at the University of Michigan. Okay. Yeah. Like, they were like, we need more people to do this. So she did, and she got a master's degree in geology. Nice. So afterwards, she took a job at Standard Oil and Gas in Tulsa. I'm not really sure what she did because it's not really that important. She didn't stay long. She was bored. Moving on. Yeah, she got, like, a bachelor's in mathematics because they would pay for it. And then she was like, eh. <laughs> okay, that's why she was there. We're yeah. Like, what? You I'm know. sorry, you'll pay for my education? Sounds good. And I've got my diploma. Here's my two weeks notice. Thank you very much. Oh, right? That's how I would do it. That's exactly how I would do it. 1948, she moved to New York City. Columbia University gave her a job at the Lamont Geological Observatory. She worked under a guy named... Bruce Heason. So he and his crew would jump on a boat, put around the Mid-Atlantic Ocean, and use echo sounding to get a crude data about the structure of the ocean floor. So they would ping sound, they would shoot sound down, and basically count what was going on, like how long it took to get there. Mm-hmm. You see, up until about that time, people had assumed that the bottom of it, the sea, was flat. What? It was featureless. Yeah! Are you s- People just assumed... Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. We are such presumptuous bastards. We are yeah, I don't I don't even know why they thought that was a thing, but whatever. His team would ping high frequency sounds down and record the time it took to hit something. And unfortunately, Marie was not allowed on these missions because she was a woman. It was apparently bad luck to bring women out to sea. Yeah, reading about 1920 laws and women, if there were industries where women would quote like be a distraction to men. They could be like, no, we legally have the right to not include you because you're a woman. Like, she would later be allowed to go out, but until then, she would instead sit back at the lab with her assistant, Hester Herring, and use that crude bathymetric data, or, like, data of the ocean, to draw and detail a bigger map of the ocean floor. So she did this with tens of thousands of data sheets over six years. Tens of thousands of data sheets, Megan. No, I'm just trying to imagine, like, how many... Like, the size of the paper, how many binders they must compile, like, how many bookshelves, like, full of them they've got to be. Over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Over six years. And her work illustrated an entirely new world that, like, no one knew about. So valleys, plains, mountains, all hidden under the unforgiving waves of this crazy ocean. We all know how I feel about it. But the biggest matchup in all of these data sheets was a very deep V structure. 
underwater mountains running vertically almost smack dab in the middle, separating the western continents of the Americas from the eastern continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. So, you know, obviously, when you spend so much time in your work, you tend to notice trends. Mm -hmm. And Marie noticed this this V and made an immediate connection to Alfred Wegener. So I can't really see you because Skype won't show me your face while I'm reading through this, but I assume there's a blank stare going on. What? I totally <laughs> know about that white man that you're telling me about who is I mean, music related? No, no. It's not a common household name. I didn't know his name. Yeah, I have no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So let me explain. In 1912, Wegener published his scientific theory of continental drift in a publication titled The Origin of Continents, or in the original language, <sighs> boyfriend was so nice, he he speaks German, he called me, got on my voicemail, and told me how to say it, syllable by syllable. Oh. And I think I'm just going to put that in here. <laughs> so I just give it in five, four, three, two. The Entstehung, the Continental und Oceana. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and then he expanded on it in like another journal with like kind of the same name, but he added ocean on the end of it. So it translated to the origin of continents and the oceans, not just the origin of continents. In 1920, there was a reprint and he introduces the term Pangea. Is this the guy that originated the term? Mm -hmm. Like, he's the one this goes back to. Okay. All right. Cool. There it is. Pangea. So the idea that the continents were all originally one supercontinent and there were shifts in the Earth's tectonic plates that caused Pangea to break apart into the continents that we know now. So his theory was not widely accepted by the scientific community. People, like, scoffed at him. They were not going to take it. They instead believed in the expanding Earth theory. I've never heard of that. What the hell is that? Apparently, Earth is supposed to expand, which shifted the continents, but it was never like a full continent of Pangaea. It just made our continents drift farther away from each other. Okay. Because the Earth got bigger for some reason. That's what people thought was actually happening. Okay. I mean, at this point, at least the Earth isn't flat anymore. I just, I'm so confused. So, of course, we're going to fast forward back to the 1950s with Marie, and she's seeing the connection. She's literally looking at evidence that supported Wegener's theory. So she brings this up to her supervisor, Heisen, and his response was very simple. He dismissed her evidence as, quote, girl talk. Okay, I know your mother asked us to not cuss that much, but what the fuck? <laughs> that is so fucked up. I, I just you know what like my girl talk is is how to make men okay with commonly discussing like menstruation and cups and pads and tampons Ugh, girl talk oh my god i'm so mad for her right now oh god that just so gets under my skin furious she was so upset and, like, she's like, I don't understand. Like, I have this thing. And he's like, no, 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 no. Because he also believed in the expanding Earth theory. So what did she do? Where did she go? What did she do with that knowledge? She <laughs> she was trying, but he, like, kept pushing her away. But thankfully, we're going to enter in Howard Foster stage right. So he's in hired because he was a supervisor of this lab, uh, Foster, to plot earthquake and volcanic locations 
in the oceans for a project that surrounded itself around large-scale turbidity currents and undersea earthquakes. So he was going to plot where all the earthquakes and the volcanic eruptions happened undersea. And that's what he did. So Tharp is looking at this, and she sees this map Foster was making. She overlaid his map on top of her map and saw that the locations of these earthquakes aligned themselves with the location of her mid-Atlantic ridge. So what happened next? I'm so intrigued. Eight months after he's in dismissed her findings as girl talk. And she showed him those two maps overlapping. And that's when he went, oh, okay. Okay, so she went to her boss. And like, I imagine Mm -hmm. she slapped both the things down at his desk and just didn't say anything. (laughs) I feel like I would, that's, that's where I would go. I'm not really sure exactly how she presented it, but I imagine it was very like, just livid, like, my work, my year, my six to seven years of work yeah. of painstakingly putting together all of this data that you went out and collected and didn't take me along. This, this is where it all comes culminates. Like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Like, that's how I would have been. Um, so he obviously couldn't deny it anymore. He moves forward with the publication of the map. But he omits Tharp's name. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so did he include her scientific research? Mm-hmm. And her- he published it under the laboratory as work published by the laboratory, supervised by him, because she was merely an assistant. So what happened next? So he moves forward with the publication of the map. It was a literal piece of art. It was created by an Austrian landscape painter, Heinrich Beren, who, like, took those maps and, like, made it into this piece of art hybrid to show where the ridge aligned, where the volcanoes and the earthquakes would have pulled apart the supercontinent. Like, literal scars of the earth. I'm so intrigued. I can't wait to see that. It, yeah, I, it's so crazy to look at. It's, it's runs across the entire, the entire thing. There's like one particular piece that focuses specifically on the mid Atlantic region, but like more research was put into it. You can find this scar throughout the oceans all over the world. You can find where the continents were pushed apart by these earthquakes and these volcanoes. Oh, that's so wild. It's insane. God, there's so much that came before us that we'll just never know. Uh, apparently, there were more than one, like, supercontinents, and Pangea was just the one that happened before ours. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, right? You didn't know that? No, I, didn't know that I had no idea. Apparently, there were multiples. Yeah, it was crazy. So it was published by the Office of Naval Research in 1977. Here's the thing. She was kept on the team via grant money, not actually employed by the university. And it remained that way until Heaton's death in 1977. Okay, so what year did she start again? Because by then it's, what, been seven to ten years? 1948. Holy fuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She was working on grant money that entire time. So nobody would listen to this theory. Like, there was a map, but everybody was like, no. I don't understand. So Jacques Cousteau, the famous explorer with the red hat, what's what's the the movie, the fancy movie? It was starring Bill Murray. Yes. Yes, right? and the beanie. Okay. Wes Anderson. Yeah. Okay. So that movie with Jacques Cousteau in that, he's a real fucking person. And he 
put cameras down in the ocean once and for all to get photographic and videographic evidence of these ridges and what exactly was down there Mm -hmm. because people were still like, no, it's too flat down there. Like, I don't understand. So he puts it down there. Basically, he went, he did it so he could be like, no, that's not right. There aren't entire mountains. There's not like a giant V there. Mm -hmm. And of course, when the video footage came back up, it told Marie's story. It told what Marie had known this entire time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Evidence for continental drift of tectonic plates that caused Pangaea to split up into the continents we now know, it's there, which is why we no longer hear about the expanding Earth theory, because we have overwhelming evidence for continental drift. And how, basically, how the Earth works, essentially. Like, what's going on underneath that causes these volcanoes and these earthquakes to happen? But that's so wild that... It's only as far back as the 1970s. Yeah. That was when she finally published. I mean, she was obviously working with this since the 1950s, yeah. but it was just like, what? Like, how did you guys not know? And honestly, because I think, what was it? The 1960s, we were working for space and we decided to learn more about Mars than we were, like, about our own planet. We still know more about the moon than we do about our own oceans. And that's why I'm so scared of the ocean, because there's so much going on. <laughs> So she continued to work after Heeson's death, finally getting employed by the University of Columbia uh, until 1983 when she retired. Uh, She ran a map distribution business after she retired. And then when she died, she donated her map collection and the notes to the Map and Geography Division of the Library of Congress in 1995. Oh, that's pretty sweet. She received double honors from the Library of Congress, awarded the first annual Lamont Doherty Heritage Award. Like, she started to get, like, posthumous awards, and people are starting to realize that her work, her just constant laboring over these maps where she took these data sets and she created an entire drawing based off of these data sets. Every time, like, a ping came up, okay, that's a little higher, that's, like, a mountain, that's a little lower, that's a valley, like... She detailed an entire map of entire landscapes, an entirely new world, off of seismic pings. And she, like, stuck with it even though she was working under a really sexist boss, too. Like, that must have been such, like, a tricky thing of do I stay and do I get to do the work even if it's not recognized? Or do I Mm -hmm. risk trying to go somewhere else where I don't even get to do this much? Because of sexism and because of politics, yeah. I think she understood that, like, this work needed to be done, mm-hmm. which it sucks that she didn't get recognized until, like, later on. But she gave us what was underneath the sea, and you can't take that away from her. Like, we know her name now. You know what I mean? And it just took us way too long. But imagine discovering an entirely new world, Megan. <laughs> and then having someone dismiss it as girl talk. Yeah. That's crazy. (laughs) Um, She unfortunately died in 2006 via cancer. I don't know. It didn't tell me what kind of cancer, but there are a bunch of awards that she did, and I can write those down on the show notes. But yeah, that's that's my favorite feminist for this week. That's so sweet. I don't think I could have named any oceanographer before, but at least now I know her story and her contributions. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really awesome. You are. 
You guys are pretty cool strangers on the internet. Milana, if people are interested in learning more about who and what we've covered and to see images, where can they go to find out more? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. You can email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. You can tweet at us at Milana Megan. So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And you can listen to us on multiple platforms. So we are on Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, and Spotify. If you're listening on iTunes, please rate, review, subscribe. Actually, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening because we love listeners. But in the comments section below, go ahead and let us know what your best Halloween costume was and what your worst Halloween costume was. Uh... Megan, dear. Oh, God, you're going to bring up the bird, aren't you? Let me tell you a story oh about 18-year-old no. Megan and Milena. Look, I, that was a pretty solid paper mache mask. It's not what we planned, but it's what you got. Milena chose DC Universe Batman because oh my God. the Dark Knight came out, and she was really excited, and she was... Milena was Harley Quinn. She was Harley I was Harley Quinn. Quinn. I am not... Embarrassed of liking Harley Quinn. I'm embarrassed that I liked the dynamic between Harley Quinn and the Joker. I have now grown up and become much wiser. And we're not in high school anymore. Okay. Yeah. We're not in high school anymore, but we had boyfriends at the time. So I was going to be Harley Quinn. Boyfriend was going to be the Joker. She was going to be Robin and her boyfriend was going to be Batman, right? And we were supposed to do our own interpretation. So, of course, I did the classic Harley Quinn and Megan... And her boyfriend at the time decided to do a literal interpretation of Batman and Robin. So the problem here was that her boyfriend didn't follow through. So he just put glow sticks in his hair because he had an afro. And she took too long to make her costume. She was going to be a literal Robin. So she tried to make a paper mache beak, a red one, wore a red shirt and called herself a Robin. And I will put that picture on Instagram. No, No, don't you dare. I'll put. I'll put both of us on Instagram. I'll put the one that my picture of me, my fat butt as Harley Quinn. Oh, my God. I'm going to take it down so hard. All right. So, yes, like, like, rate, review, subscribe. And uh, (laughs) thanks for this trip down memory lane, Milena. I can't wait to show you. I can't wait to show you. All right. Until next time. Bye, guys. (laughs) 